Would you please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2? We are... Last Sunday we started our series, A Time in the Book of Joshua. It's towards the end of the Bible, sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And we're entering into the second chapter this morning. And the book of Joshua is the story of Israel taking the land of promise that God has given to them. And this story this morning is about counting the cost. That's, that's what I'd like to call it, counting the cost. And I'd like to, you to think, take a second, to think in your own minds of a time that you've really had to count the cost, where a decision had to be made that where you really had to sit down and assess, what is this going to cost me? And if you can follow this thought in your own memory, or at least imagine, imagine a scenario where the truth is, is you're not really trying to pick between two options. You're not, it's not so much that you're at a crossroads. It's that you're at a place in life where there really is only one option, but you just have to come to terms with it. So maybe, maybe you have had an animal, a family pet, and it's time to put that animal down. It's, you know you have to do it, but just coming to terms with it is counting the cost. Or maybe you have to declare bankruptcy or close a business or call something a failure. And the alternative of that is to living in a delusion or in denial. But counting the cost is simply accepting this is the only play that I have and owning that. Saying goodbye to a loved one might feel this way. Or uh, tough love in a, an addictive scenario. Things where to not do it would be denial. This morning we're going to look at a story where it appears on the outset that Joshua is sending, well, Joshua is sending spies into the land to spy the land out. In a way, it appears as though he's counting the cost. He's assessing the situation, okay? That apparently is what's happening. But as we read, I think we're going to find there's a much different sort of counting the cost that's taking place that... Uh, it's pretty unexpected. So what I'd like to do is just start reading in chapter 2. And I'll read the first seven verses here. So just a little bit of uh, background. The Hebrew people, Israel, is encamped on the east side of the Jordan River. And they have, they're just getting ready to go into the land of promise. And this is what is written. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman 
had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men did come to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. I don't think these are very good spies. <laughs> Just want to note that. Like the first day on the job, the king knows they're there. They take a lodging at uh, the uh, prostitute Rahab's house. And just to give a little bit of background here, if a woman had a room to let back in this time, she was most likely a prostitute. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who needed a room wanted a prostitute, but if you were a woman who was giving your home away, that's probably what you were. So um, I, you might think of this less. I think it's, it seems less to make less sense that on the very first day of this covert operation, these special forces spies decided just to take a break and have some fun. Though they weren't any good, it seems un- unreasonable. What probably is more the case is that these spies are trying to lay low, like hang out on the side of town where people don't ask questions. Kind of like the Star Wars cantina. You know what I mean? Go there, keep it on the DL, and figure out what you can. Uh, and they are staying with Rahab, who is a prostitute. And there really is no nuance to that. You, you can't read the, the Hebrew description of who she is and, and come up with, she's a baker, she's a prostitute. Um, and the way this, this passage ends, this reading, so one through seven sort of is a section of the story, and it ends with a suspenseful moment. So, you know, if you've never really read this story before, you're in luck, because to read a story for the first time is always a blessing. But if you have, just try to suspend what you know about it and read it afresh. There's this, these spies are almost caught, right? They're about to be caught, except for this woman that they don't really know hides them for some reason that they don't understand, lies to send people on a, on a different trail. And the way the section ends is, they're alive, but the doors of the city are closing. And when everything is said and done, they are trapped in the city. This is a Robin Hood sort of moment where you're like, they're, they're in trouble. And then what happens is the Hebrew is going to take about a seven-verse break just to allow the suspense to build while really the, the real story unfolds. So here's the real story. In between the gates closing and the escape, here's what happens. Let me read verses uh, 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. 
and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now this really is uh, the heart of the story. And what we just read tells us a lot about why Rahab did what she did and who she is. And I I really think the story is sort of in those questions. So why did she do what she did? Well, the first thing, there's two things we notice here. The first thing we notice is the story of God, the story of what God has done has preceded the spies. Rahab knows the story. She knows all the important details of what God has done. She says these things. She says, I know that God has given you the land. She knows the content of the promise. She knows that God intends to give the land that she's living on to Israel. Not just her, but everybody. She says, we all know it. And for that, we melt away. People are fleeing the land. They're fleeing Canaan, the land of Canaan, because Israel... Because they know that God is bringing Israel into the land. She says this. She says, I know that God saved you from Egypt by drying up the Red Sea and bringing you across. It's worth noting that that happened 42 years ago. So even odds are is that Rahab had not even been born yet. And she knows this. that the whole region of Canaan had been shaken by that story. She knows that just recently, Israel, and by recently I mean months, not years, months, Israel had defeated King Og and King Sihon, who were not small kings, they were significant forces in the area. They were, it was a significant kingdom that Og and Sihon, the Amorites, occupied, and they pressed influence on Jericho. So Jericho is smaller than either Og or Sihon, and Israel has taken out Og and Sihon. And she knows it. In fact, she says an interesting phrase. She says, you devoted them to destruction. That's verse 10. That has a specific meaning, by the way. Jericho will ultimately be devoted to destruction. That's the phrase that God uses, meaning you did not beat Og in battle and sue for peace. You beat Og in battle and killed everybody. You beat Sihon in battle and killed everybody. 
and they were bigger than us. And we know this land God is giving you. You feel it? You feel the emotionality of it? She says, this is why the land melts away because of you. Everybody knows you're coming. And everybody knows you're not coming to negotiate. That's what she says. Think about these spies for a second. You know, I'm sure the spies knew the story that they had of crossing the Red Sea. I'm sure they had heard that a thousand times, if not 10,000 times. You know, these spies weren't alive when it happened either. They were born after it, but, or, or very likely they were young when it happened. They were youngish. So you can imagine that they have heard the story all growing up. Every year they get to hear the story of how God redeemed them from Egypt, from their mom. They sit down in the tent at the dinner table and she tells the story. Can you? They really don't have that many stories in the Bible yet. This is the story in the Bible. I mean, when God rescued them out of Egypt, he said today is going to be day one of year one as you as a people. So they've been a people for about 42 years. They don't have a lot of stories. If they had a flannel graph in Sunday school, they'd have one story. It's always the same story. Like, what are we going to study today? Well, we got the Red Sea again. Can you imagine how well they knew the story? I bet you, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking as a one who grew up in the land of the stories of the Bible and have heard them a thousand times, they may have even have grown bored of the story. You know, every year Easter comes around. Every year Christmas comes around. You ever get bored with it? Because it's worth noting that Rahab's not bored by it. Rahab believes it, and it has fresh power for her. Rahab, hears, Rahab knows this story, and it's real. It didn't just happen. There's a living God behind it who's still living and is acting, and is doing, and it's on her doorstep. I just think about that. I think about how Israel crosses the Red Sea, and like a few weeks later, so they have this huge story, God bringing the plagues to Pharaoh, parting the ocean, fire in the sky, smoke in the sky, all of this amazing story that's happened. They cross the Red Sea in a few weeks or a few months. They're grumbling. They're wondering, is this even worth it? Why are we even here? Is God even powerful enough? I'm hungry. What is God going to do about my hunger? I mean, the petty crises of their life overshadow the overwhelming power of their God. So much so that about a year after crossing the Red Sea, they're going to arrive at the Promised Land send in 12 spies, and 10 of the 12 are going to say, there's no way our God can bring us into this land. They are way too powerful. That's the people of God. The people who said that literally had their feet on dry ground in the midst of the Red Sea. And they said, there's no doing this. I am reminded, I'll just speak for myself and of us generally, I'm reminded of how earthly we are. I mean, we, you and I, those of us who are in Christ, I'm speaking purely to Christians in the room, those of us who are in Christ, we stand on a living God who's still alive, still acting, who is full of power and might, who's done things, no, no one, unmatchable things, and he's done them for you. He sent his son 
His son's given his life and shed his blood. I mean, this is, table reminds us of what he's done for you. And yet how, how frequently in our weekly crises, he's small. Or the story is boring. I would say it this way. Rahab's life seems totally shaped by a story that the spies may have become bored of. And I find that interesting. I, I would say this. You know, last Sunday I said, I asked you, would you please consider a place in your life where uh, strength and courage in the Lord are not resident, where maybe fear and weakness predominate? And would you begin to commit that to saying, Lord, I'm going to allow you to keep pushing here an area of your life maybe where you know there's something you just need to do, you just need to do it. And, but the bow wave of resistance is just in your way. And I've asked you, I'm, I'm going to just ask you to keep that in front of you and keep that in front of you. You know, I think one way of beginning to build strength and courage is that we not only remind ourselves of what God's done in the past, but we remind him what he did a few months ago or recently in our lives. The, the augs and the sahones of our life sort of that you and I and one another, we tell one another, remind one another that God is still alive and acting. And when we remind, we keep the pilot light lit for others so that they can do what they need to do. Rahab knows the God who parted the seas just decimated two kingdoms and he's coming. That's the first thing. So the first thing we see here is that the stories of God precede the spies and Rahab knows them and believes them. Here's the second thing we see is that Rahab reaches the correct conclusion about God. She comes to the correct conclusion about God. She says it in verse 11. Her summary of all of this is that he is God. This is the back end of verse 11. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. That's the Hebrew way of saying there is no other God. In fact, that exact language only shows up twice in the whole Bible. I'll show you the first time. This is Exodus chapter 20. That you're going to see this in about three seconds. Two, one. Thanks. This is Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You know what that is? That's the second commandment. You shall not bow down to an idol. That's the Ten Commandments. Here's the second time it shows up. This is Deuteronomy 5. This is what it sounds like. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. This is, uh, the Lord repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. This is a repetition of the second commandment. You shall not bow down to another idol. In other words, at the Hebrew record of, of what Rahab is saying, Rahab is essentially saying, I know that your God is the only God. That's what she's saying here. She's saying all these idols, and Jericho had plenty of idols. Ishtar, Moloch, Asherah, you could name them, they were there. It was this pagan land of idol worship. And she's saying all of those things, I know that they're worthless. I know that they, are, they cannot hold a candle to you. I know that your God is the only God. That's what she's saying. 
I wonder, you know, in light of the fact that the whole land is melting away and the fear of the Israelites and the fear of the Lord, don't you think that Jericho had become a pretty religious place, at least in these last days? I imagine, I imagine smoke was rising to every God you could mention. But Rahab's not bound at any of them. She's not bound at any of them. She's going to one God. And this is what I find interesting. She is coming to God. Let's just think about this. In all the calculations that Rahab is making about her life, in all of her prospects, in weighing things out and counting the costs and considering God and what he's done and what he's going to go do, and all of her sort of running the numbers and thinking of the math, this is what she chooses. She chooses to come to the conclusion, maybe, maybe I can go to him and he won't kill me. That, that's interesting. Talk about a wager. I mean, Rahab, okay, so let's just talk about the hierarchy of the city of Jericho or of an ancient city. So first of all, at the bottom are, would be somewhere in the bottom rung would be the women, right? She's already the least of these. She's not the king. She's not a mighty man. She's not an official. She's not a guard. She's not a man. She's a woman. And then you take her in the stratus, the, however you would stratify women, and you stick her at the bottom of that because she's a prostitute. She is at the socioeconomic bottom of a city slated for destruction by a God that she believes in. And her play is, what if I go to him? Think of that. I mean, it'd be nice if she just had that, but I'm thinking she's played out all of her options. Can I bat on to Ishtar? No, that won't work. Moloch? No, that won't work. Asherah? No, that won't work. Whatever number of gods? No, they aren't going to stop him. The gods of the Amorites? Well, that didn't work. The gods of the Hittites? Well, that's not going to work. Should I, should I run away? Well, that won't work. They'll eventually catch up with me. Should I try to do this or that? That won't work. She has exhausted, I'm just saying, in her situation, her only play apparently is I will go to the God who is intending my destruction. I, the least in the city. That's my hope. Talk about a wager. That God would take her in. Some part of me wants to say it's gutsy. It's a gutsy move. Another part of me says, well, actually, it's her only hope. So when, if you were to read commentaries about Rahab, you will invariably come across pages, sometimes pages and pages of damage control. Like, is Rahab a prostitute? Because we're Bible folk. So what are we doing with Rahab playing such a prominent role. Is she really a prostitute? The answer is yes. But then there's other things like Rahab lies. So one of the commentaries it has doesn't have like a page on this. It has pages on the ethical issues of lying 
in order to protect the spies of God. Was that appropriate? Was that inappropriate? What? And a little later, they swear by God. Well, you know, you're not supposed to swear by the Lord's name. And so there's people who spend some time on that. Like, was it really appropriate to swear by the name of the Lord? To which I think to myself, what are we doing? What are we doing? Like, are we really trying to clean Rahab up? Why are we trying to clean Rahab up? Do you think in God's eyes you're any different than Rahab? I mean, in, when you talk about the, the holiness of God standing, do you think the nuances between you and Rahab are distinguishable, distinguishable to the righteous eyes of God? Do you think that God, would, God wouldn't destroy you, but Rahab? Well, Rahab. Is, is that what? I, I don't understand this. Well, I don't think we need to clean her up at all. I think she makes the story fabulous. She makes the story what it is. Because if God will do it for her, then we all have hope. In fact, I don't think we need to clean her up at all. If anything, we need to be a little bit more like her. Someone who has the stories of God fresh in her, who believes them in a fresh way. She believes God's powerful. She's not bored of the story. She knows God's active right now in this world. And she has fear of him. And she thinks maybe he'll save me. She, here's the deal. She has the fresh story and she has perfect theology. Perfect theology. Some might say, well, you know... Rahab is a good character in the story, and there's a lot to learn. I would just say it's not a story with Rahab. It's just the story of Rahab. This whole story is the story of Rahab. There is no other story. You can sit here and read the rest of Joshua and wonder, if not for the fact that God wants to put right in front of us the life of Rahab, why is the story even in the Bible? Rahab is the story here. I'll, give you, I'll show it to you. So the story starts and stops with, with Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, triggers the story and closes the story. He's like the bookends or the brackets, okay? But inside of the story, there's all sorts of characters in the story. I just want to know, can you tell me the name of the spies? Get those names down for me. Well, John, you know, the spies... That doesn't really say anything. I mean, why name the spies? Well, I'll tell you why they name the spies, because the, I think Israel sent in 12 spies 42 years ago, and I know their names. I'll, I'll tell you their names. I don't really know their names. I know their dad's names. Numbers 13. You want to know who the spy from Reuben was? This is a fun one, Shamu. Maybe it's Shamal, but I like to say Shamu because it... And his dad was Zachar. I know those spies. Why don't I know these spies? What about the king? What's the name of the king? Did you catch the king's name in here? King of Jericho. King is a pretty important person. Well, John, we don't even know the king. Well, I know the king of the Amorites was Og and Sihon. I know that. I know the king of the Amalekites was Amalek. I know the Pharaoh. I know all things about Pharaoh. Why don't I know the king's name? What about the guards? Do you know the guards' names? No. 
you know, except for this story being bracketed by Joshua, son of Nun, who's not really a character in the story, there is only one name in this whole chapter, one name in this whole story that you know, and it's Rahab. She is the story. She believes in the power of God, and she knows her only play is to go to him for mercy. She knows, like, there is no hope for me anywhere. I have no alternative whatsoever on the face of the earth except that I run straight at the God whose just wrath is coming my way. It's perfect theology. I wonder sometimes, you know, uh, after this we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount and I'm reminded of how the low, the low in in our eyes, the lo- people we estimate as low see the kingdom, how they gain the kingdom. Maybe it takes someone who knows that they have no other hope. Maybe it's a blessing to her. She's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of a city slated for destruction because she doesn't live in the myth that you and I might be tempted to live in, which is we have some viable alternatives. You don't. You don't. She has perfect theology. And by the way, I wanna, if, if you're not careful, you're going to ruin it. <laughs> You're going to ruin it in yourself because we're coming up on this Jericho. Jericho's ultimately going to be destroyed and a lot of people are going to die, men, women, children. And that creates in our day and time a lot of like stress about God. And if you're not careful, you are going to have a couple of major heresies at work in your stress. You're going to think, God really has some answering to do here. So I just want to challenge you right now. I'm going to be rough this Sunday because in like three Sundays, I got to be careful. All right? Just does or does God have the right, the righteous right to take human life? You need to ask this question of yourself. Is there anyone here that you, you or anyone you've ever known whose righteousness extends to the point where the Lord no longer has authority to judge him justly. That's important to hold. She has it. She says, I know this land is yours. She doesn't complain. She doesn't say, hey, can you send the God, uh, uh, I have a complaint. Does he really have the right to take me? She's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. She knows God's coming in his just wrath. Okay, so first one, does God have or does he not have the right to judge all of mankind? Because one day it's coming. This book in Joshua is pointing to the end of the Bible where the Lord will in fact come and judge all of mankind. All of mankind. And if you have this theology wrong, if you don't think that Jericho should fall, then my hunch is you don't think you should either. Which means you lose the justice of God and you've lost the mercy of God in the same play. You don't need his mercy because you surpass his justice. If you're not careful, two big heresies are going to work themselves out in this story. She, her theology is perfect. All right. Uh, I guess the last, last question before I read. Do you think that Rahab would have risked her life to save those spies? if she thought she had any other hope of salvation. How are we any different? Verse 15. So 15 through 24 is going to sound a little long and lawyerly 
for a bit. And um, if you want to sort of grin while you read it, so they're going to escape out of a rope out of her window. But all of the like lawyerly arbitration doesn't happen until they're on the rope. Now, maybe it did. It just doesn't, in the way the language plays, it's like, it's almost like they get on the rope and then she says, hey, let's talk. So I always imagine in my mind, like these guys hanging on this rope, like, fine, fine, whatever you want is fine. Just let me go. So anyway, I don't think it's necessarily how it played out, but uh, it makes me grin. Let's look at 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, for she lived in the wall. And she said to them, here it happens, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. You see how they're starting to get tired? But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. There's a lot said there, kind of in the back and forth, but the punchline is at the very end. Truly, the Lord has given us all of this into the to our hands, and the land melts away because of us. That's sort of the punchline. That this, this misadventure of these two spies, they come back and they know before they've even crossed the river, the battle's won. The Lord has done everything that needs to happen already. They just have to walk into it. Well, I think it's good for us to remember that since you and I worship the same God with the same power who's equally active and has put his powerful spirit in us and has sent us to do things that require the faith and the power of the Lord. I think it's worth remembering and reminding ourselves that that God is already victorious. Already, he has won the battle. And you're going to be sent out to it. And I I will tell you, one of the things I've been struggling with all along the reading here is, yeah, but it doesn't feel like the land is melting away before me. I don't walk into some place and they say, someone tell us about the Lord, please. And everybody sits down attentively and it just doesn't happen. And so I feel like, well, I know I'm victorious, but it doesn't feel victorious. And I'm reminded, I don't think it felt that way for the spies either. We should note, the spies, 
did not do very well. And feed for their life for three days as they hid in the rocks and under the flax bales. And I mean, it was a misadventure for them. And yet, still, when they come back, they know God is going to give them victory. Their life was hard, but they know God is going to give them victory. They know God is for them. I'd hope we'd be that way. Okay. As we begin to think about the Lord's table, I want to pause for a second. And I want to do one last thing with this story, which is think of how this story fits in the broader story. So move from the story up to the Lord Christ, right? From the story of Yeshua thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, to this story of Yeshua that we call Jesus. Same name. Same name. How, how does Christ, how does he fulfill this story? Or how does this story, I mean, there's, this story is part of a series a series of stories or a thread that's really important, being brought out of bondage, being rescued by the Lord, being brought into a covenant, being sanctified in the wilderness and given the promise. That's our life, right? That meta-narrative, we fit right into. So how does this story of Joshua and Rahab, how does this come into our lives in Christ now? I'd say we could say a few things. For one, we could say, For them, there was a land of promise. That was their inheritance. For you and me, I'm not really waiting. I'm not waiting now for the land. I know, but I do know this. God will one day judge the earth. He will devote the earth to destruction. And then he will give a new heaven and earth to his people as an inheritance. And I know I want to be part of that. I'm following that God. Are you following that God? I'm following that God. So in a way, in a way, the earth is like his Jericho. And there's a sense. This is where things start to change a little bit, right? In Joshua, Joshua's sending these spies to scope out the land for destruction. But, you know, so he's sending them out two at a time to go spy it out. But with Jesus, it's a little different, right? You and I, we're not mindful. Our conquest is not a conquest of destruction. It's a conquest of salvation. I find that you and I are being sent out two by two, not as spies, but as ambassadors. We're going out not to kind of lurk in the dark places and hide out and try to get what's going on, but rather to climb onto rooftops and to proclaim to people, hey, judgment is coming and there is only one play. And in case you wonder, he will receive you. Like in the book of Joshua, it's up to the lowest of the low to kind of wrestle the promise of God out of the spies. But for us, we're not to be that way, right? We're not supposed to be holding it tight. We're supposed to be offering it, offering it to people. There's a sense, right, that in this, this room, this upper room where this gather, right, there's this, one day in this upper room, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people will worship the Lord. Like the blood of the lamb will have been put on all the door frames. It'll be a big household of people who have been garnered to himself, right? There's a sense in this, this better, right? Christ is better. This, the mission of Christ is a, he's a better Joshua that we're going in to save the world through the promise and the mercy of God before justice comes. This is who we're coming to this morning. 
And so I'll say to you, if, you're, if you think you will weather the justice of God, then you, you need to remind yourself you're more like Rahab than you think. And you really only have one play. If you want to count the costs, you really only have one play. And that is to come to God and hope he has mercy. And the Lord's Supper says, he has mercy. He has mercy. In fact, what the Lord did is he devoted his son to destruction so that you might live. And that's what we're remembering this morning. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I'll pray. As we walk to this time of the Lord's table, Lord, we come to you. I lift up every person in this room. Lord, we lift up those that we love who do not know you yet. Father, I I lift up those of us who've identified the places where weakness and fear have a role. And we pray, Lord, that your story of power would be fresh in us so that we, we could bear the message of mercy to others. Lord, we thank you that you forgive us our sins. We thank you that you choose not to look at us like the world would, might judge us or not to hold our sins against us, Lord, because you've placed them on the shoulders of your son. So we turn to you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.